for me, I'm sometimes uh, um, doubting if I'm like a typical designer. I'm not a typical designer, that's for sure. I think more like an artist than a designer. So I never start with function. Yeah, for me, it's about that character. If there's no character in the end, then for me, it's no reason to to buy it or to keep it or to treasure it for, for many years. So it has to, to live and it can be old or new or it can have scratches. I like all stages of, of, of a piece. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour to the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. And welcome to a very special episode brought to you by Lumens, The Grand Tourist Introduces. Today, I'll speak with three rising stars in the world of design, each with their own unique story to tell. We'll meet an award-winning designer who uses her extensive research into materials to create minimalistic designs that have a sculptural quality. A designer based in a small town in Mexico who is using his own research into materials to create collectible works that harmonize with the local agriculture and native culture in totally inspiring ways. But first, we'll chat with a wonderful talent from half a world away, Zizi Poposwa, an artist and designer based in Cape Town, South Africa. Raised on the Eastern Cape, most of Zizi Po's works are inspired by her Hosa culture, an African culture at large. She creates abstracted, large-scale sculptures in ceramic and bronze. Her works are on the collection of the Met in New York, LACMA in LA, and the Loewe Collection. Her new show is called Pillars of the Nation, which just opened at Gallery 56. Itself a new gallery in New York owned and curated by my friend and legendary architect and interior designer, Lee Mandel. This exhibit, her solo show debut in the States, was done in collaboration with Zizi's gallery back home called Southern Guild. She's created tactile-looking bronze pieces inspired by the women of her hometown and their traditional practice of carrying heavy loads on their heads, from bananas and firewood to overwhelmingly large straw bowls. The results, which I just saw in person the other day, and are nearly sold out, by the way, are truly extraordinary. Like all of her work, they're recognizable in terms of their sources of inspiration, but they never step over the line. Fun fact, CZ Poe also shares a studio with another Southern Guild artist, and one that I previously featured during my Departures magazine days, Andale Devon. Before I met with CZ Poe in New York, I caught up with her from Southern Guild's gallery in Cape Town to chat about her culture, the trials and tribulations of creating such large-scale works, and her hopes for the future. Before you kind of studied design, you grew up uh, in the Eastern Cape province of, of South Africa. What was growing up there like? Growing in the Eastern Cape was beautiful. I have amazing memories of us um, as kids playing in the, in the landscape and also going to uh, play in the riverbanks to get some clay. I actually grew up between the city and, and the village. So my mom was a teacher and um, so I had to be with her in the city and would visit the village uh, during school holidays. So it was amazing. She raised me together with my husband we were about 10 of us, but I was the unique one with the, the talent of being uh, an artist. And so uh, what kind of, what, how did that talent sort of emerge itself uh, as a young girl? What were you, what were your sort of early inclinations towards art? Were you, did you like to draw and stuff like that? Yes, I drew a lot. I um, worked a lot with paper. I did a lot of paper sculptures. I spent a lot of time, because my mom was a teacher, she had projects where she had to teach kids how to draw. And I was doing all of those uh, complicated uh, skeleton drawings. I was um, allowed yeah, to play and, and collect different fabrics, pieces of fabrics from uh, the nearest tailor. So the whole house was full of um, fabrics because I needed to create for my dolls. I would collect a lot of found objects from um, the, the surrounding area to create a pair of sunglasses, to create um, a fashionable item through some uh, yeah found objects and and so I, I also read that you studied surface design which sort of makes sense now that you talk about creating things like a sunglasses and stuff like that how did you transition from from that to kind of working in in, in ceramic and and now in, in bronze 
So when I finished my matric in 1998, having no uh, art background whatsoever, uh, I had to apply uh, to Nelson Mandela University of Technology. I had to do one year uh, as a, um, a foundation course because with, without uh, art at all, I had no uh, background. So I had to then be introduced into art. And so um, that was so amazing for me to experience, you know, different materials, different art forms, and uh, not not knowing actually, uh, I just knew how to draw, not knowing what sort of different careers one would take, but discovering all of that was uh, beautiful and overwhelming, overwhelming at the same time because I got introduced to ceramics, I got introduced to fine art, to textiles, printmaking, and all of that, which was fun for me, and it was so hard to choose with. Ceramics, um, I met a friend of mine uh, who's now my business partner, Andili. And um, I then basically got introduced to to, to ceramics, uh, which was the, in the foundation course. And then later on, I decided I wanted to major in textiles because I was drawn to a lot of textures, a lot of pattern and color. And I felt like it's actually going to allow me to work with different materials in the future and which happened soon after. And because your heritage is so closely linked to your work, I was wondering if you could explain to listeners, many of them are, are Americans or, or New Yorkers that aren't familiar with Hosa culture, like what you feel its defining characteristics are in relation to the other ethnic groups of South Africa, like in that sort of constellation of, of different cultures there. Yes, we are actually the second largest uh, ethnic group uh, in the Southern Africa, and uh, we speak Isitosa, which is our language, which is quite connected to um, the Khoi, which are the Aborigines of the Southern African people. Our culture is deeply tied to honoring and being guided by our ancestors. And there's numerous initiation rituals that mark uh, milestones in, in the Tosa life. We also believe in the importance of uh, family and the clan. Yeah, those, I would say, these, they are the defining fact factors. And uh, obviously the role of women uh, in the culture is, is you know, a driving force in your work. And how did how did you connect that part to that work like where you were like ah like i think i i found something that has now embodied all these different bodies of work or about about hair about uh the loads that women carry on their head how did that how did you kind of did you have an aha moment where you were like ah there's my there's my inspiration there's my there's my work I actually did have an aha moment because when I started, I started creating smaller uh, bowls um, and and those were decorative and they really connected to my background as a textile artist. Um, but I got an opportunity to, to participate uh, in an exhibition called uh, Extraordinary. And that was going to be my first. It was my debut in, in the conceptual work. And uh, Southern Guild was as basically uh, presenting this body, this show, and it was a group show. So I had to come up with something really special, and, and, and that defines who I am. And so that's when I realized that um, the women that raised me, the women from my community, are the ones that are extraordinary. And uh, from that uh, exhibition, the response was overwhelming. And that's when I continued, and I wanted to expand more on that narrative. Oh, wow. Amazing. And um, there are similarities between, you know, uh, your work and his, but of course, like your ha yours has uh, this sort of touch of the feminine divine, if you will. Like, um, how do you, I want to think that brings us to like my next question, which is this upcoming show in New York. Um, and you also had a show in Cape Town recently called The Beauty of Our Ancestors. Can you Explain about that collection, what it is. Yes. Um, that work, um, um, I'm still excited about it because it's still a couple of months um, since we introduced the work. It is one of the most work that I'm proud of in terms of scale, in terms of um, um, just the narrative itself. So it's basically a celebration of our traditional African hairstyle. And here I'm honoring my ancestors. I'm honoring the women that are behind the making of these hairstyles, uh, which are really uh, celebrated. 
that was my main yeah inspiration was to look into also the, the the process of making the hair and the creativity that goes into into that and I wanted to make it permanent in in a way of preserving uh, the culture for the next generation and do you think that 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 culture of traditional hair is, is sort of in risk of being lost is there a what is sort of what was the impetus behind you know capturing it in in the sort of abstracted ceramics is there was there is there a kind of a danger of these traditional styles kind of going away well most of them are now not worn for the reasons that they were worn for before but um what's beautiful is that they are evolving and um so the ones that were used to be done back in the days you no longer see those um now and there's so much beauty in in what was being done back then and to to know the, the story behind um, some of those hairstyles, why they were done. Uh, so that was more what I wanted to highlight as well. And um, to to also look uh, in a broader context, uh, the continent as a whole, not just South Africa, but from different parts of the continent. And, and, and for me, that was also quite educational because there's certain hairstyles that I never knew existed. And and I found a beautiful um, archive of uh, photography from uh, West Africa, from Nigeria, by um, a brilliant uh, photographer called J.D. Okai. And, and that is uh, powerful on its own. So that was also a celebration of his work. And can you explain a little bit about the pieces themselves? How many pieces you create in that collection and... Can you describe them to, to, to listeners, like what they kind of look like? Because how big are they? Because they're quite, I think they're large, correct? Yes, they're quite large. I uh, have actually haven't done um, pieces to that scale. Um, and I've been inspired to actually create even larger than that. Um, so they are about two meters high, um, a, com- a combination of clay and, and, and bronze. They are about 20, 22 uh, of those pieces uh, uh, representing different hairstyles from different parts of the continent. And creating works of that size, was there a lot of trial and error? I mean, it sounds really difficult. I mean, is anyone I know that has ever worked with a kiln, it's really difficult to kind of like control something that you've never created before and it has to cool and things can crack. And like, what was that process like? Oh, it was actually... Challenging, but I was up for it. It took me a whole year to to create that body of work. Um, I've got a team that I work with, um, um, a production team on the ceramic side. I've got a production production team that I work with from the bronze side, and um, also on on southern gilt side. Uh, so it, it's a, a beautiful team that supports um, me to be able to create this kind of work, and I'm quite grateful for that because without them there wouldn't be that kind of work. Mm. And you know, tell me a little bit about this, the show and, and the pieces and, and how it connects to, you know, what the concept is behind Pillars of the Nation. Because I, uh, it would be best for you to explain. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, I'm still talking about the woman who've, who raised me, the woman from um, the villages um, from different parts of Africa that us, you know, struggling, uh, but are beating all odds, raising their children without their men. Um, uh, I wanted to also honor my mother, who's been that pillar of strength for my family and um, it was important for me to uh, grow this collection because it's actually a body of work that I uh, started with uh, when I um, started the conceptual work uh, journey and it has never been uh, presented as a body of work so I felt it was important for me to present it in that way um, as the narrative is much stronger in that sense and um uh, I also did um, a photo series that's coming with uh, the body of work where I'm actually um, back at home uh, in the Eastern Cape in the village uh, trying to basically um, live in their shoes and celebrate, um, you know, all what they do. What is it like sort of living and, and working as, a, as an artist and as a designer in, in Cape Town today? What are your challenges? I would say it's more fulfilling and enriching to be an artist in in Cape Town um, because we have access to materials, we've got access to uh, galleries for inspiration, we've got 
access to art fairs, um, which you wouldn't find uh, where I come from. And uh, we also have a, a beautiful communal spirit as artists um, from uh, different parts of, you know, the, the country. Um, we help each other in, in many ways. Um, if one, for instance, to have to own a, a kiln that uh, is as large as ours is not so common. So we would help, you know, others to fire in our space and the other way around. Now we have issues with load shedding. We are not able, as much as we have the kiln, we're not able to, to fire, but we've got a friend that has uh, constant access to electricity and tomorrow I'm going to be firing at his space. Uh, so it's a, it's a beautiful space like that. Um, we love, yeah, we love the space so much. Yeah, I mean, it must be when it comes to basic infrastructure to kind of be able to do such massive pieces is that uh, I think in any designer that I've ever interviewed uh, in Africa that always kinds of comes up, uh, they always come up in ways that, you know, I think would be surprising to anybody that maybe is from from someplace else where it's really it's not about anything else other than just sometimes a tiny thing like internet or electricity or traffic or something like that. Um, and, and, uh, what, what would you like to do with your, with your career? You know, like what do you, what sort of aspirations do you have for yourself? Do you have, do you want to continue this in this type of body of work or do you want to kind of like change, you know, where do you see, where do you see yourself in like, Sounds like a job interview, but it's a, where do you see yourself in in five to ten years? Yes, I I'm, I want to continue in this journey uh, as long as I constantly have messages that I have to relay um, through my dreams, through um, uh, my ancestors communicating with me. I'm happy to do that, uh, but I've got a special project that I want to to create um, to do back home in the Eastern Cape um, to basically um, teach the women that side how to create uh, uh, ceramic vessels, which is something that they it was once. Uh, done, but n nobody knows anymore how to do that. So I'm going back to do that and also to build a school in my village uh, for the up and coming kids to be able to, to study art and, uh, yeah, and basically uh, access it from a young age. Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Lumens. We're living in a golden age of design where architects, interior designers, and estates have access to nearly every brand in the world. As this magazine veteran knows all too well, a trusted source is essential to any successful design story. That's where Lumens comes in. As the preeminent destination for grand tourist-worthy lighting, furniture, and accessories, Lumens carries designs from more than 350 global brands. With in-house service and account specialists that are your personal connection to good design, Lumens curates authentic designs that run the gamut from iconic pieces to of-the-moment exclusives by designers fans of this podcast will certainly recognize like Piero Lissoni, Philippe Stark, and Patrizia Urquiola. One of the very helpful features on Lumens.com is the ability to shop by different styles of contemporary designs, from mid-century modern to Scandinavian. So if you're completely awestruck by our guest this season, Athena Calderon, and her material-first mindset of interior design, try shopping by the style Modern Farmhouse. There you'll find minimal pieces from tactile materials like copper, oak, marble, or something along the lines of the ceramic pendant lights from Hinkley that caught my eye. To get started outfitting your own rustic manse, visit lumens.com. That's L-U-M-E-N-S.com. My next guest, Fernando Lapasse, started his design career in London, studying and working under some of the brightest names in the British design scene. But a kind of spiritual burnout took hold, and Fernando found himself in a small town in the southern Mexican state of Oaxaca. There, he started a new phase for his career, creating works from humble agriculture. Think colorful panels of marquetry made from heirloom corn, a large fuzzy monster-like sculpture covered in long hair made from sisal, or hot pink hammocks covered in the stuff. While his works are beautiful and collectible in their own right, Fernando is fighting the good fight to revive a small community, train and employ people in traditional crafts, keep Mexican culture alive, and constantly experimenting with materials. And this fall, 
He'll debut a new show of work at Freeman Benda Gallery in New York. I caught up with Fernando from his studio to talk about his first fascinations with the Lufo plant, how monoculture is threatening communities, and more. So tell me a little bit about where you're uh, zooming in from now, because you're living in, in Mexico, correct? Yeah, I'm zooming in from Mexico City. I decided to take the call in my apartment today because my studio is very noisy and full of people. And so, you know, for purposes of the podcast, I took it in my in my house today. Oh, good. Um, and so you studied it at Central St. Martin's, but tell me a little bit about your life uh, before that. Um, well, before St. Martin's, I, I mean, I'm Mexican. My parents are Mexican, but I was actually born in France and there's always been a connection to France. Um, we came back to Mexico when I was very young and then went back to France when I was 15. So I grew up, you know, till my teenage years in Mexico, uh, then moved to France because of my, my dad's job. What, what did you do? Yeah, my dad's side of the family have been bakers for like over 100 years. Uh, I'm the first non-baker in like four generations. So he was doing some consulting work. I have to ask, what kind of baking? Well, French style, like European style, you know. I mean, I'm ah. from my dad's ah. side, they're like French-Italian. Uh, so that's like kind of family tradition of baking. And then, yeah, that's why we ended up back in France. And I did my high school there. And then moved to London for university, to Central St. Martins, as you said. And, and so what, what sort of attracted you there and, and to study design? Or did you study design there? I was, I was always struggling between studying art or design. And um, I don't know, you know, maybe through my parents, design seemed more sensible or more of a sure career choice in terms of uh, having a job afterwards. So they convinced me to, to do design. I don't know. I just didn't find a university that was what I liked in France. The design in France, at least at the time, was very rigid, was very kind of traditional. So I went to London looking for uh, a place that would give me more of an opportunity to really explore what I wanted to say, <laughs> even through design. And, and St. Martin seemed like, like a good option. So, so that's why I ended up there. And what was the sort of first piece that you created that kind of like echoed this kind of voice of what you were trying to say. Do you remember what that was? Mm, yeah, I think because because um, when I was starting in Central St. Martins, I started with what's called a foundation year. So it's like a, like a year zero where you do, you know, a bit of fashion, a bit of graphic, a bit of arts. And I remember we were in the module that was about yeah, sort of like 3D design and spatial design. And this was right before the Christmas break. And being such a, an international school, they encouraged everyone to everyone that was going back to their countries to bring a, a material that was, you know, common in their country, and to try and do a project with that. And I remember I came back to Mexico and I was working in a market and I found this really big loofahs. Um, so for people that don't know what a loofah is, it's a it's it's like a sponge, and a lot of people think it's from the sea, but it's actually a fruit. It's like a it's like a really big cucumber, and and when it dries out, you're left with this sort of network of fibers um, that you know. I mean, now now weirdly enough, like we call loofahs the plastic loofahs, but it comes from that, you know, it comes from an actual plant. Um, so I bought, I brought like um, a whole bag of them. I, I basically, you know, I bought another suitcase allowance. And brought, I don't know how many loofahs, as many as it could fit in there. And, um, and yeah, and I turned it into a room divider and, and some sort of like almost upholstery material. And that was really nice, actually. And that was sort of the beginning of this idea of starting to work on a methodology about trying to dominate these materials that are not usually used for that purpose. Um, and to really... Yeah, try to see what's the best application for it rather than starting with a design, you know. Um, I think that was my first project where I was like, and this was through the guidance of the school to be, to be uh, fair with them. You know, it was like, don't design until you know what the material can do. And I thought that was such a valuable thing to learn at that point in my life. I was so sort of excited about that that I, I eventually kept working on my free time, not as a school project, and, and that became my first loofah series of furniture, which was uh, 
a whole series of furniture, you know, that had like lamps and seats and it was exploring all the different sort of qualities of, of the fiber, uh, but taking it out of the context of the bathroom or the kitchen, you know, where, where it's expected. So, so that was, that was great. I mean, I was, I was only maybe 21 at that time, but you know, it resulted in a very solid, very professional looking, uh, series of furniture. And that opened a lot of doors for me, you know, from, from internships to first jobs to little articles and things like that. So, so yeah, that was, that was a really good sort of first example of, of, of that shaping of what was to come, you know, later in my career, perhaps. And, you know, as things have evolved um, with your career, like what have you learned about materiality, which is like a word that gets thrown around a lot with, you know, design today. It's all about, you know, materiality and materials and being authentic and blah, 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 blah. Like what have you learned about it that, that you feel is uniquely yours in terms of how you've, ex you've sort of explored these, um, these materials? Well, what I've learned is that there is a lot of blah, 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 you know, um, I think, <laughs> I think, uh, I don't know. I think, you know, uh, it was also a moment in time that was very, it was very much about that. You know, I, I was studying in 2007, 2008. I think a lot of how I shaped the way I designed was through the context of my time at, at that moment, you know, or my life at that moment, which was, you know, we were the, the kind of young graduates graduating at the moment of the financial crisis, you know, so there was no, there wasn't really much prospects of getting a job uh, or, or, you know, being scooped up from your graduation show by some furniture editing company and, and, you know, get your stuff produced. It became very much about self-production, um, you know, this DIY culture. And I feel like uh, that was particularly strong in places like Holland or England where, you know, it's, it's just, really prohibitively expensive to hire someone to do anything for you, you know? So, mm. and you're never going to be as good as a professional carpenter or a cabinet maker or, you know, a welder. So I think uh, a lot of young designers from, from London at that time um, got into this material exploration uh, realm because that was our way to actually self-produce and produce something that had character um, without the necessity of a big investment or a really big skill set, you know, you can make your own sort of micro craft in a way. And there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of the materials that you use, of course, are native to Mexico. And, you know, you work with things like corn and agave and all these sorts of, was there an aha moment after the, after the loofah, <laughs> after the loofah that kind of like, be like, hey, I could make more things out of these sort of overlooked materials and in some cases the materials that you explore are kind of in danger of going away yeah i i feel like you know at that time especially the years immediately after my graduation so this must have been like 2011 2012 i was i was really on like a frenzy of of finding my material and obviously i had references like all the dutch designers at the time that had their technique their material or you know i mean i was my, my neighbor at that time was max lamb for example so oh, you know, okay i do know you know and i have people i i mean i was working on a freelance basis for beth and wood and for fate too good so i had all these references of people that had a very distinct style and, and, and material palette. And I was really trying to look for mine. I was working with sugar and blowing sugar as if it was glass. I was trying to make soaps out of the fat of trimmings from the butchers around my studio. This is in North London. I was, um, I don't know, I was really getting to chemical processes. And it was nice. And I had little articles here and there. And I could show in, in, in fairs here and there. But it was nothing that really had that much weight to it. And I feel like that came with with the corn. So just to give you like a little preface of, of how that story started. When I graduated university, I couldn't really stay in the UK because I, I didn't have a European passport at that time. And um, I could see my deportation coming, you know? So, uh, <laughs> so I was really, I, I really wanted to stay in Europe. I really wanted to stay in London. And I, I found out that even though they had gotten rid of all the post-study visas at that time, there was a new visa that was called graduate entrepreneurs. And it was very, very few of those visas being given out. But basically, if you had an idea or, you know, with a, with a mini company that you could start, they would give you that visa. And at that time, I had this project with the sugar glass. It was basically a technique for rotation casting 
as if it was like resin or, or plastic, but I was using sugar. And I was really kind of like, I really dove really d- deep into the cooking temperatures, like cooking it right before it becomes caramel when it's still see-through. And so I was making these glassware that were edible, you know, and I mean, it sounds really tacky now, but you know, that was, that was the <laughs> thing back then. <laughs> and so I did a few events for alcohol brands that you got the attention of of whoever was re, uh, revising my application when I applied for this visa, and I got the visa. But it was a bit of a blessing and a curse because it meant that I could stay in the UK, but I had to focus full time on this little sugar glass business. And it started off really wonderful, you know, working with museums and galleries for the first year or so. But let's say by the third year of that, it had devolved into just catering for the most horrible corporate parties. And I think the one that really made me stop the project altogether was I I couldn't leave uh, to see my family for Christmas because of my visa situation. I had to do a Christmas party for an insurance company event. And it was just okay. all these British, British lads, you know, being super drunk and being al- almost abusive. Honestly, it was it was just such a horrible experience. Oh gosh! Um, and I go back to I remember I go back to my studio and I was like, never, I'm never doing this again. And I took a knife and I slashed all the molds for making silicon. Oh, wow. Uh yeah, I was like, that's it. You know, I don't care if I get deported. <laughs> I don't care if I don't care if like my visa finishes. Like I'm not I'm not here. I'm not here to do this. So um I applied for um for a little residence in Mexico. I just felt like I needed I don't know, it was everything was going so wrong in London that I was like, I need to go back to Mexico and and, and find myself again, you know. <laughs> so um so I applied for a for a residency that had to do with food and design in Oaxaca in the southwest of Mexico. For your listeners that have never been to Mexico, Oaxaca is one of the most traditional sort of places for culture and gastronomy in Mexico and for the arts as well. And so I applied for this residency, which was in this cultural center that was started by an artist and activist called Francisco Toledo. He passed away three years ago, but but he was like a massive figure uh, in Oaxaca. Besides from being a really, really accomplished artist, he was a very fierce activist. And, and he's credited for be really turning Oaxaca into the cultural center that it is today. You know, he started the botanical gardens, the uh, graphic arts centers, loads of foundations for the arts. Um, and one of these was the Casa, which is in an old textile factory on the outskirts of Oaxaca. And I got this residency for three months there. At that point, Mexico was about to decide through the Supreme Court whether to install a permanent ban on GMO corn or not. And especially in Oaxaca, there's a big tradition on on food. There were a lot of protests. And one of Toledo's, you know, pillars of his activism was was that, was to defend our culinary heritage. It was hard not to get involved with that, you know. It was I was like, well, that that's super interesting. And I really started to inform myself and educate myself on the issue. What I found out was it was also it was of course a political issue because a lot of these corn is coming from foreign countries and foreign companies but it's also an economic issue uh, the problem is the prices of corn in Mexico are fixed and you can't really charge more than what's certified by the government you know it's uh it's what's called the the basic basket this is to ensure that everyone can afford a, a kilo of tortilla you know mm-hmm. because tortillas in Mexico are like baguettes in France if people can't afford tortillas, Heads roll. You know? right. There's revolution. <laughs> revolution, yeah. So the price of tortilla is, is artificially kept low by the government by being doing big subsidies, typically to really, really big productions of corn. And so what that has ha- the result of that is that all of our native corns, which are not as productive in the sense that, yeah, you, you can't you know douse them in weed killers and fertilizers because that's not how they grow. Um, so they don't produce as much grain as the industrial corns, um, but obviously they're way more nutritious and, and good for you. And probably tastier too. Exactly. But you just can't legally sell them for more than the industrial corn. And and I was like, okay, that's a, that's a massive issue that no one is really looking at. There was a lot of political activism, but nothing really looking at the economics behind it. So I kind of set myself the task of being like, okay, I also don't want to fall into this trap of, oh, can you work with a fancy chef and bring this heirloom corn to fine dining restaurants in Mexico City or New York or wherever. The idea or the challenge here was like, can you do a new material that will give these uh, small scale farmers another source of income without touching the grain? You know, like I didn't want to mess with the grain at all. And so that's when I started to look at the leaves because the big sort of quality of a lot of these 
uh, mazes and corns, the, the heirloom ones, is that they are super colorful. And that color starts with the grain but goes into the leaves. I was like, okay, the leaves make the most sense because that's really so visually different from, from industrial corn. So that's what I focused on for three months. At the end, I had the samples and I did a piece and it was, it was really nice and it was promising. And I tried to start doing it in Oaxaca, but it was very hard. It was very hard because uh, they weren't very trusting of this white guy from Mexico City coming and being like, hey, let's work together, you know. So, so I decided to, to go to Tonahuixla, which is the village that I has been kind of like the, the focus of all my work for the past nine years now. And Tonawixla is a village that I know since I'm a, a child. So I felt, okay, this is the place where they know me. Uh, I know that they still plant all of these heirloom corn. Tonawixla is this super isolated village, you know, in the, in the middle of the, of the mountains. And there's no signal, no phone, no internet, nothing. The, the re-encounter with Tonawixla is a bit of a bittersweet moment because obviously it was really nice to find again. But at the same time, it was devastating to see the state of the, of the village and, and the fields, you know. Basically, all the land had been eroded. No one lived there anymore. I mean, it was com the town was completely empty. Mm. And um, no one was planting heirloom corn anymore. So my plan of just going there and buying all these leaves and starting this design project kind of, you know, was flipped on its head because uh, there was no material. But also it was just so shocking to see the devastation, um, you know, because of this sort of change in agriculture in the early 2000s, the government started, the Mexican government started to really force on them the, the use of all of these pesticides and and weed killers. And that put an end to the traditional planting system that they had practiced there for thousands of years. Corn needs the hand of man to survive, you know? If you leave a corn by itself, it grows, it dries out, it falls to the ground, and then there's so many leaves and, and the grains are so packed together that they germinate on the cob and then they just asphyxiate itself and, and it doesn't grow. So you need men to take the grain and to plant it. But at the same time, corn is what allowed us to have enough food to build the great civilizations of central Mexico, you know, and Guatemala. And, you know, you wouldn't have heard of the Mayans or the Aztecs or any of these great cultures without the discovery of corn. And Tonawixla, this village where I work now, is incredibly important because it sits about 80 kilometers from the oldest archaeological site that evidences the beginnings of corn domestication. So you're really talking about the epicenter of corn. And for me to go back to this village and to see the total devastation of this ancient system was, was really like a major wake-up call. And I think that was the beginning, you know, to go back to the original question, that was the beginning. That was the aha moment. That was like, okay, this is not a project that is about creating a material that I show in the Milan Furniture Fair and then I move on to the next. This has to be something that is long-lasting, something that is impactful, and something that can really bring up change, at least within this community, you know? I mean, I think the idea has never been naively to try and change the world. Um, my approach is like, can we make enough change in this one community and, 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 and then take it from there, you know? And so... Fast forward to today, you're creating things from uh, like a veneer from from some of the corn, correct? Yeah. And then you're also working with the agave plant to kind of create a like a sort of a fur, like a, a vegan fur. It kind of also, almost looks like horsehair. Um, and you're creating these sort of like, uh, I mean, they're kind of like, you know, animals or creatures, like some are pink and some are just almost looks like Cousin It from, uh, I think, the Adams Family, of, like, a bench with, like, really long hair. And what is, and, and you know, also, like, huge creatures made from this sort of, like, fur. What has that, you know, reaction been like out there in the world of design? Because now you're working with an incredible gallery, Freeman Venda, and you're, you're working on a big show coming up, I think, in the fall. And so, like, what is the reaction from the world of sort of art and design been to sort of the fruits of these lab of your labor and your kind of, deep connection to to mexico and to these materials i think it's been positive i mean i think it took some time to be honest you know we started i started i mean i say we because i, I would work together with them but um, we started the agricultural sort of regeneration process of making the soil fertile again um, and we had this, the first design results you know 
since 2016. But I think people weren't people weren't so sensitive to natural materials back then. I think back then it was more about okay, what's your material? And it could be blocks of resin, or it could be jasmineite, or it could be like all of these kind of like synthetic materials that designers really loved at that time. And I was just kind of in my own corner working with this plant fibers and really banging this drum about uh, regenerative agriculture. I mean, I, I didn't even have the word regenerative, you know, regeneration was really like at the beginnings of it. So I was I was doing regeneration and it was regenerative design, but there wasn't really a term for it. And I feel like words are so important in that sense. And I think my practice really started to acquire much more importance during the pandemic. I think it was a moment where, you know, it was such a major wake-up call from nature to the world and everyone was in their houses and, and things like inclusion, ethnic and racial tensions and sustainability and climate change became this kind of like super intertangled thing that everyone became much more aware of. And I think that's where my practice started to really resonate a lot more with the general public and, and the design public. Obviously, you know, the, everyone has loved the the pink fairy slots and, and I, I tried to make some of my work purposely very playful because no one really wants to, you know, be guilt-tripped into, into, <laughs> into some sort of ecological morality, you know. Um, so I feel like by, by bringing some sort of tongue-in-cheek aesthetics and, and more playful approaches to the pieces, you can engage in conversations, you know. I feel like a lot of... I believe everything is a negotiation, you know. And so if you're going to change the way someone thinks or someone confu uh, consumes, the worst thing you can do is to go and, and, and shame them straight away, you know. I think it's a, it's a conversation. It's a negotiation. So you have to, you know, stick out your hand. Um, and, and, um, and that often happens with a playful design, you know. And then once you get people's attention, you can start to push these other more complex ideas behind the pieces. And you have a show coming up, uh, I believe, in the fall. Have you started to work on that in terms of like, are you producing like you know, new types of work or different materials or how's that going? Yeah, I have a show um, with Freeman Benda in, in September. And yes, we are in full production mode right now. Uh, we're, it's going to be sort of a, yeah, like an overview of, of my main materials, uh, mainly corn and, and agave. And a hint at, at this new material that I've been working with, which is avocado. That's another massive project mm. that I've been working on for three years now. That's going to be also shown uh, in the design triennial at the NGV in Australia in Melbourne. Um, and it's a project that deals with the dark side of the avocado production in Mexico. It involves looking into deforestation, looking into how the overconsumption of avocado in the world in general has put the monarch butterfly in danger. But it's mostly looking at violence, uh, really how people are literally killing themselves um, and cutting down whole forests because of this what was was being dubbed in Mexico as the new green gold, you know, the avocado, and the, wow. just the sheer amount of money that it creates. So it's going to be a, a a big show. It's going to be a documentary as well, and it's going to be the presentation of a new material uh, that I've been working with with avocado skins. Before we return to the program, another word from our sponsor, Lumens. The incredible site has one designer-friendly feature that I find totally helpful. Not only can you sort your shopping results by color, but also by finish. So if you're inspired by our former guest, fashion giant Zondra Rhodes and her penchant for eye-popping color in all things, and want to indulge on pieces in Viva Magenta, Pantone's color of the year, let's say, you can do that at Lumens. Speaking of pink and magenta, our guest today, Fernando Lapas, has produced numerous works in this classic hue. In the right shade and shape, it fits into any design scheme. By shopping its Think Pink trend, you can find hand-knotted rugs from Japan, low-key modernistic wall sconces, ceramic table lamps with rustic shapes, and more. So no matter what color you're hunting for, a coat rack in green or a bed in paprika red, visit lumens.com to find the right design for your home or project. That's L-U-M-E-N-S dot com. My last guest is Linda Freya Tangleder, 
a designer in Belgium specializing in furniture and lighting with a fresh point of view that's turning heads. Linda Freya trained at the prestigious Design Academy Eindhoven, worked a bit with the famous Campana Brothers in Brazil, and since graduation has run her own practice she calls Destroyers and Builders. More on that later. What I find most fascinating about her is how she walks in two worlds. One being the business of one-offs and collectible works of design, where she sells her minimalistic pieces through leading galleries like Carwan and Nilofar. But she also designs production pieces too, like her wax stone light for the Italian brand Casina. And the cool-headed material obsessive designer just won Young Design Talent of the Year from the El Decor International Design Awards this spring. I caught up with Linda Freya from her studio in Antwerp to talk about her process, how she differentiates her gallery work from her products, all about a project she did for Dior recently, and more. So thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I'm, I'm so happy to talk to you, and it seems like you're having quite the week. You just won a, a lovely award from, uh, from El Decor International. Congratulations on that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and tell me a little bit about, um, you, I, I believe you studied at the Design Academy Eindhoven. Uh, what made you want to study design? Um, actually, that that started from very young age. Um, not that I pronounce it as um, I want to study design, but uh, something that had to do with interior or art. It has some, yeah. Like I didn't know the exact direction direction that I wanted to go. I think it just started with with making a lot of drawings and a lot of miniatures. I didn't call it miniatures at that time. I called it uh, like little. Um, uh, knutselwerken. <laughs> it's like little, little, um, yeah, materials put together, uh, like little dolls or little furniture. So I, I was always uh, raised in quite a, a creative family. So that was one side. And then on the other side, when I became, or when I uh, was a little bit older, my grandparents were also quite important for the choice making. Um, at a certain point, I, I just felt yeah, all the stories that they told me and the house that they lived in, it was quite a collector's home, quite a lot of Scandinavian uh, furniture, but all different time zones and also different uh, areas that, that they uh, collected from. And just this balance between history and uh, contemporary, uh, contemporary, I, I found very interesting. <laughs> and, and when you went to school, did you, uh, how did you sort of fall in love with design like how did that kind of uh, evolve and and then i started to first i went to groningen it's um it was an art academy and i did it for half a year and then i then i thought no this is way too vague um yeah it was it was about painting about um quite abstract uh subjects and then i felt that no it has to be a little bit there should have be uh, there should be a context or there should be uh, an end result that you work towards and then uh, then i did something that i that that i didn't dare at that point yet uh, to apply at the design academy eindhoven and that was just very good choice i felt directly this is <laughs> the place that i want to be and yeah it was very just a really fruitful period and I dived into a bit, a little bit too hard. I think, <laughs> like after after <laughs> so. uh, after two years, I was uh, yeah. I just then I after two years I uh, subscribed or I described from the school. Described? How do you say? Unsubscribed. You you dropped out. You like you left. You left. <laughs> yes, I did. Uh, okay, okay. So I unsubscribed and, I, from the school after two years at Design Academy Eindhoven. I felt that okay. I had to to do uh, internship or like learn from the from the real life, and then right. after uh, one year, I came back to to do the second uh, part of the the school. So I did um, in total, I did um, two years, one year um, field work, in and between. then in between, and then two years uh, continuing. And how, why did you, when you started your studio, you know, after graduation, a few years later, uh, why did you name your, your studio Destroyers and Builders? And, and the name of my studio started from a project that was about uh, the positive and negative things of uh, tools. Like uh, uh, you can use a scissor in a very positive way, but you can also use it in a negative way. And it was like starting as, as, as a super wide research with everything that that i had around me like uh yeah just uh, searching for tools that has this dual dualistic side um that was 
like the one reason, but I then I felt like destroyers builders for me it's about how you design. Like you 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 make something, you have to uh, maybe take away a little bit of uh, the the past to make something new. So for me, it's like this uh, circle of making uh, and destroying, uh, not in a super aggressive way, but more in in a free way, like to to be free to make something new. Um, yeah, you have to to take away a little bit of the past, but also use the past. And it's it's more about this this um, this method that keeps me going. Also, so I for me it's like a yeah a force behind me that that is saying like eh, like you 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 can continue, but you also have to be um, yeah you have to be able to throw away or some models that you t- uh, throw away, but also in the way of uh, the choice of materials, like for example, brick, eh, like that's one material that I really like. I think the fact that it's connected to building, building materials, and um, yeah, completely different world. I think it's that inspires me a lot. You know, how do you describe your practice to someone today? If you if you meet them, what what does destroyers and builders do? But what, what I think it's it's specific about uh, the way I work is the different materials that I. Um, I I use and the link with architecture. So uh, mainly that is that is the way I how I would explain. Like uh, I look around me and I'm inspired by architecture and the details in architecture, like uh, like a brick or um, uh, a cornerstone or so. That is just one one of the starting point, but also the material. And um, often it has to do with a building that I've seen in a certain material, like. Like uh, glass started with glass bricks, for example, uh, like like from a building. That's how I started to to uh, work again in glass. Brick is the same. So uh, like I also work with a new uh, sandstone that I saw in a in a beautiful building in Basel from um, Renzo Piano. So often it has to do with all what I see and what I want to. To research and what I think it's it's enlarging the family of materials and um, yeah it's also about the interaction of this different materials coming together. In what way? I mean, because yo, I was going to say because most of your most of your products and, and most of your designs are sort of you know one material. True. Uh, and very kind of you know, tell me a little bit about how you how much you know material kind of. Uh, exploration you need to do in order to kind of get these things to do what that you want them to do because they're all quite um they're very precisely right even though they might be one material primarily they're very they're quite precise in how they're put together indeed I, for me it's always a little bit uh, scary the first project in a new material is always uh, scary but uh, the 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 beauty of it comes from from the process. So, for example, going to the factory, uh, learning from from craftsmen, uh, seeing the different options, is yeah that that moment that you start to uh, to talk with people around you uh, in the field of a specific material. Then it starts to come alive. Um, that's also uh, like together with the first project that I have in mind. It's also a lot uh, a lot of learning, like learning what I thought that that was possible or uh, but uh, i realized that it's not possible for example is that that is what happens sometimes it's um i'm able to make the products but sometimes i have to to change the design and start over again um but on the other hand i'm also like for example yeah no it's just that i have an, a, a starting id and if i'm if i want to make it in that material Often it's not easy, but it's it's also a challenge to 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 realize. So it's also all almost all of my projects are a little bit difficult in the beginning, and then uh, just because it's difficult, you already get to learn quite a lot from the first project. But it opens the world of that material. So from there, you can add it. there are so many options, and yeah, then I get a little bit addicted about one material. So with glass, that was uh, certainly the case. I really wanted to do uh, another project with it, and I and I think it's it's quite interesting uh, talking about the first prototype that I made for uh, Carbon Gallery, the 
the glass column. So it's actually mm -hmm. cl uh, stacked glass on top of each other, uh, four parts. Um, very difficult because it had to fit exactly in inside each other. Uh, the glass is still something vivid. Eh? It's something liquid. So uh, it's never precise, the mold. It's always a little bit different. So that was quite a challenge. From that that um, sculpture that we made for, for Carvan, it was a very good starting point to continue in, in the collaboration with Casina for the Waxstone Light project. Yeah, I mean, that was... Uh, sorry, I was going to ask uh, what the relationship was between uh, the sort of art piece that you did for, for Carwan Gallery or a collectible design piece uh, and this Casina light, which was just introduced uh, in Milan Design Week. How does how do you take one and how are they how are the designs different? If you can explain that. Um, so for Carwan, it's um, it's a little bit greenish uh, color of glass, um, totally transparent glass. And it's about shapes of the glass that that fall into each other, like they they are really uh, organic, and um, it's based or the inspiration comes from stones that that precisely fit into each other. Uh, so that is yeah the most difficult that you can imagine that because of the corners and the yeah, the the parts that are yeah just uh, irregular, totally irregular, and then you have to to have the contrast shape that has to have the same. Uh, um, contour in a way. And then with Casina, it's semi-opaque glass, so it's uh, it's another color, it's another um, yeah transparency, but also different shapes, different sizes. So uh, everything is different, but what is uh, what remains the same is the texture that is done by hand. So um, what I what I wanted to do, like if if we would uh, make this light project for Casina, I really wanted to have the initial process in my studio to make the the wax models. We did it in my studio, and from there we made the scan, uh, the mold, um, and the and the Murano glass uh, pieces. Um, so the starting point is the same, starting from my studio, but the 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 end result is quite different. And so what would you say is your uh, like a kind of a career goal? Where would you like to be? Where, where would you like to take your studio? As it because it seems like you you know you've You've definitely gotten over this first, uh, you know, phase of your career. Like you have recognition, you have awards, you have beautiful projects with the best brands and the best uh, uh, and the best galleries. Like, what what do you still many what, goals? What sort of vision? Yeah. Do you have? <laughs> yeah. What do you, What are your goals for your studio? But I I think it's it's um, what I really would like if works that I made as a, as a limited edition um, could grow more in a installation or a site-specific location. That's always what I thought about pieces that, for example, my, my last show with Carvan Gallery in Athens, uh, there were, was, for example, one pool that I made, like a little, not a pool, it's a water pond. Uh, it's not nice that big. <laughs> it's not that big. <laughs> Um, okay. But that water pond, I already saw it in uh, like a, in, uh, an outdoor project or something like uh, together with my partner, who is landscape architect, I thought could be quite interesting to uh, to implement. Um, or this paravan, for example, that I made, um, which is partly mirroring, partly um, blurred, uh, cloudy. Uh, surface, I thought it could be very interesting in as an installation for a fashion brand, or uh, so there are all different starting points that I uh, suggested with these pieces. But I think the the continuation of that uh, that outcome is is not there yet, or um, it's not that I I am searching for it, but I I hope that it's that it comes on my path to uh, to take it one step further and. Yeah, to make it more site specific, or uh, to get these open questions like, uh, could you do something in the uh, in the direction of this? Or uh, so that that is what is missing in my studio. That that we work on, yeah, in, in close relation with um, with maybe an interior designer or maybe in, in collaboration with an architect. That is the goal of the studio. And I'm I'm curious if you could tell me a little bit about uh, the project you did with Dior just about I think it was two Salones ago, right? In, in already 2021, yeah, already. Yes, <laughs> uh, two years ago at this point, um, where you kind of created your own interpretation of their medallion chair, 
and it looks very uh, uh almost like a like a like a like a drawing come to life or like a like um a computer simulation of shapes that kind of like create a chair that looks like it looks not impossible but also kind of very unique in this way right. where it doesn't feels a little alien tell me about how that how that came together it was, it was a very interesting um subject i thought like this chair uh was sent to me like uh, they sent me a, a typical chair the Midian chair and um the version that i received was in silver uh, threads like a, a pattern in silver threads and the, and it was made of wood like the textile part were were in silver threads uh, upholstered and uh, the wood was silver silver paint or silver um uh leaf like leaf yeah. yes so in a way i received a silver version which was for me perfect because i already uh, loved the material aluminium so i i directly felt okay it has has to be an aluminium chair um but i found that super classical details and these ornaments i didn't really like it um and of course it's not not my style so i felt uh, let's disassemble the whole chair without touching the the real chair but just making a lot of miniatures again so uh, first i made one uh, the original one and then it was like a play of all uh, cardboard models that in which i placed that that typical midian shape on other points like uh, if it could be the seating or if it could be uh, the arm rest or um, so i had all these different versions um, and then one of them had had the Midian in as like a sort of backrest uh, that you can only see from the top. So only when you look look from the top, you see the the Midian quite clear. And indeed, it, the the end result has uh, only three legs, so it's uh, it's just on being stable or unstable. But the fact that it's quite heavy uh, mass of aluminium, it it makes it quite steady as well. So in the end, it's CNC milled uh, metal. And then send it by hand. Uh, so also the smoothness. Uh, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't look like like machine made. Uh, I, for me, it felt feels like it could be casted as well, right? Like the the end result uh, could be a casted chair or uh, yeah, or a CNC CNC milled chair. Um, and I like this this um, fake in between state of the chair, and also. The fake in between of being sculptural and uh, functional, and I, I guess you, what I uh, one thing I'd love to ask you is now that Design Week uh, is over and it's sort of we're back to back to doing Design Week in April, and it feels like the cultural landscape is sort of trying to reset back to where it was before the pandemic. Uh, and things are so much different now than they were maybe three years ago in Indeed. terms of like uh art and culture and and how everything works together um what do you think the role of a designer is in the greater culture today i think uh to keep on experimenting and to uh to yeah to be quite um <laughs> dominant in in the conversation with with large production partners or uh that that you can be quite dominant about uh what is what is a, a small change? What what it can give to a, a yeah to a product? How you can um, yeah change the path of of uh, of production uh, or change the location where the production has uh, uh, should yeah or where they are originally uh, produce if it can be more local. All this uh, these conversations. I think the the designer is quite responsible for. Uh, starting that conversation and also to uh, to be resistant in um, in in the the new ideas that are possible, but also with your design, you can already uh, yeah you can already um, yeah bring it in the good direction, uh, depending on which material you choose for. Um, so I think that responsibility, but also to to be playful and to be. Uh, uh, to open up the the <laughs> the industry and 
um, because it's quite like quite rigid, right, and quite uh, strict. And I think to be playful and and to open up the process, I think that is quite an important role. And what's next for you? What's what's next in the horizon for you this summer, the spring summer? So what what I want, and that is. Uh, just because I had a little bit crazy full year, <laughs> like uh, the the fact that I was uh, like last year, these two two solo shows that I did, and then the first collection with with Casina, and now the second, uh, it was quite a quite a thing, and a like unstoppable <laughs> process. And what I want to do now is uh, for the next month working on a new series that that is about experimenting. Yes, I I decided that that after a super full year, there has to be a few months in between somewhere uh, that are more free about uh, starting up new things. Uh, without that, I cannot uh, I cannot continue on new projects. That's also what I did just before that very busy period that I had, um, that I had a little quiet uh, moment in the, in the COVID, in the time of COVID that helped a lot to, to start up all the projects that came out. So, I really like to have this, uh, yeah, quieter zones and busy zones. But on the other hand, we are working on yeah several projects, um, uh, a new collection of lighting also for Carbon Gallery that we hope to uh, to launch in summer. Um, also with Casina, I'm working on a new project that is for next year. In one month, I'm showing a, a limited edition of stools with Hem X, uh, Hem uh, the Hem company uh, you know them mm-hmm. uh, so hem has also a collaboration with different designers that are working on a limited edition so mm-hmm. um, next next month i think in new york it will be uh, launched sounds very <laughs> yes <laughs> sounds very busy actually not a lot of downtime <laughs> but uh, yes i think when there's not a deadline uh, and, you, and and there's still some uh, time to play around in the studio i think it's uh, it's a good thing Thank you to Zizi Poe, Fernando, Linda Freya, and everyone at Gallery 56, Southern Guild, Casina, and Friedman Benda. And of course, our sponsor, Lumens, for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.